Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast. My name is uh, Daryl Mathers. I'm with my co-host as usual, Chris Bovey. Chris, how are you? Doing good, Daryl. How are you? I'm excited. I'm going to get a haircut finally Friday. So uh, yeah. I know that's something that you are concerned about, but, I, yeah. <laughs> but I'm yeah, excited. But no, I'm excited. It's been one last thing I've had to worry about during the pandemic is when or when and where my next haircut will come from. But I do empathize with people that have had to wait, I mean, especially John Tory. I have empathized <laughs> with John Tory throughout, um, but good on him for, for sticking through it and not uh, doing it himself. <laughs> I got a bit of a Tory thing going, but I'm not going to show you. Mm. Keep that private. <laughs> well, it's probably a good idea. Uh, one thing we're not going to keep private is uh, our next guest, um, Chelsea Lal. Chelsea, welcome. Hi. Hey, Chelsea. Right. So this is a little bit different uh, than some of the podcasts we've done recently, and I'm hoping that we can do this a little bit more often as we continue to kind of evolve in the podcast world. We've actually been at this for quite some time. It seems like everybody who loses a media job uh, becomes a podcaster, um, but we've actually been doing this uh, since 2000. 16 and uh i think this is one of the ways in which we can kind of reinvent ourselves a little bit from time to time because we do a great job at ontario shores of telling stories and chelsea's story has been told in parts um through ontario shores over the last few years but we've never really sat down and kind of got all of it together and and that's kind of a, a trend in in the podcast world is sharing these in-depth stories and taking time and being patient so chelsea thank you for being the first one to come on you've been on the podcast before but not in this uh format so thank you for for being here today thank you for having me so people who don't necessarily know you may not know that you you know your connection to ontario shores and we'll get to that but um you as a person um you know where'd you grow up what was your childhood like um you know your family what was the like you know, when I ask you to talk about that period of your life, what comes to mind? Um, so I grew up in Bowmanville. I was born there. Uh, the thing about Bowmanville at the time was there was not a lot of diversity in the town. Um, so it became very apparent, especially when I started elementary school, that like I was a little bit different. Um, I was very privileged to grow up in a family where I had a lot of support. Uh, my brothers were really supportive. My parents were really supportive. But I did... Uh, struggle a lot with the social aspect of it. So I was always a very quiet kid. Um, I was someone who would read out recess and things like that. So mixed with a little bit of the uh, outcastness that um, it, I experienced, as well as the little bit of awkwardness in the social realm there, um, I experienced a lot of bullying. So I entered kindergarten, um, and from honestly the time about kindergarten to around grade seven, um, there was a lot of bullying for me. Um, and that came, that really heightened my anxiety. Um, and went with that also came a lot of other aspects of the, when you grow up, you obviously get, go through developmental periods and stuff like that. Um, so I was going through anxiety, 
and the issues with like friends and stuff like that, developing friends, making these connections. And I think for me, it was very evident at the start and to anyone you can attest to this, that I was a very different child, very yeah. quiet. I was very, I struggled. I struggled with the social aspect of it. Um, and school was not fun for me for that reason. Uh, and it was very hard to form connections, but I did actually have friends and things like that. That was nice. Um, but obviously it was anxiety was a big part of my life as a child. But before Chris jumps in with the next question, just if you kind of dial it back to your initial anxiety, because I remember you saying you were always an anxious kid. Yeah. Um, so what does always being an anxious kid look like? Like what were some of the things that you were doing or behaviors that you were exhibiting at that time that made you kind of an anxious kid? So it was funny. There was two parts of that. I could either be really quiet or I would not stop talking. Um, when I was, when I'm anxious, I tend to blabber and I did that a lot as a child. Um, a lot of my anxious behaviors were I isolate myself from my peers. Uh, so at recess and like during uh, social aspect, like events and stuff like that, I'd be in the corner with a book. Um, I'd be avoiding group activities. Um, and then when I was in group settings, I was either quiet or I was not taking uh, social hints and stuff like that because I was scared. Um, so I just start on tangents or like, and obviously as a child, people pick up on the fact that you're a little different. Um, so that didn't really help. But uh, I was a very like withdrawn child, I think. Um, I would get stomach aches a lot. Um, and I don't think I really attested to that like being anxiety at the time. I just thought, hey, we have stomach aches. Everyone has stomach aches. Um, I would shake a lot. Um, I would, whenever there would be like gym class when you had to be in groups, Anytime I'd be put into a group setting, um, it, that was not fun for me. I would get those stomach aches and I'd have to leave class. Um, and I don't think anyone really realized that it was anxiety quite yet because I'm still young. It's probably about like seven or eight um, to the point where like everyone thought it was just like stuff I was eating and stuff like that. But no, it was clearly a precursor of me developing these uh, tendencies, but I didn't really realize that at the time. And you also were dealing with some obsessive compulsive behaviors. And I wonder what that looked like for, for parents out there. Like when you were younger, what, what were some of the things that you were doing that would have been signs or symptoms that you had sort of this OCD type challenge that you were dealing with? Uh, so I could never just like things. Um, and that was like evident from the start, even books. Like uh, I use the example of the Twilight series because I was big when I was younger. Uh, I read all of those Twilight books in probably a day or two. Um, it was like to the point where like I hyper fixate on things as a kind of form to like as like a kind of coping skill if that makes sense I'd like throw myself into it but then I'd also do routines um and a big one for me was I had to check that the door was locked constantly whether my parents were awake or sleeping um and then there was a big one I used to have night terrors when I was a kid um I'd walk through the halls at night um and I would not be able to lay down before I made sure every all the doors were closed and all the uh, doors were locked because I thought if there was a fire and the doors were closed, um, we had a fire safety thing um, at school and they mentioned how if doors are closed it prevents fires. I'd have to make sure all my family's doors were closed. So I'd, it'd be like two or three o'clock in the morning. I'd wake up with the urge to go make sure their doors were closed. Um, I'd have to make sure the doors were locked, but it can never just be locked once. So it would be like locked twice. I'd have to clear the click and it, I would get anxious if I didn't realize that. Um, and like for everyone, it was just like a Chelsea habit. Um, we all just kind of said, oh, this is what Chelsea does. Um, at school, my desk, my desk was 
organized to the point where it was like if my pen was out of a certain spot i get anxious um, i would have like miniature panic attacks to the point where i'd be shaking and sweating if i didn't have a pencil that, that was like sharpened the same size and stuff like that um and it wasn't like things that i communicated to people it was things people like slowly picked up that i now as an adult looking back can see that these were ocd tendencies um, but stuff like sharpening a pencil, I would have to sharpen a pencil like three times. Um, and it was little stuff like that. And now yeah. as an adult looking back, like as a child, you don't have the ability to say, Hey, that's not what a child should be doing. But like looking back at it now as an adult and it's, it's like seeing how anxious it made me at the time, uh, you can definitely see the correlations there. Yeah. I was going to say it's, it's hard for kids cause you don't have context, right? Um, that's just your norm. You don't know any other, any different of what's going on. And so, um, so, you know, I'm just curious as you went through school, like who kind of identified this? Did you see it from did friends comment? Did your parents kind of click in or was it a teacher or when did people start to say, you know, what's going on here? I see, I sense that you're struggling. Uh, it was my teachers at a very early age. Um, I was always gifted in the academic realm. Um, and I always struggled in the social realm. Um, that was very apparent in like group projects um, and stuff like that. I remember a lot of my report cards, and actually we still have some of them. I read them. Uh, we had like a box of all my report cards, and I read them, and I read the comments, and I was like, "Ooh, this is definitely an early indicator." There, um, there was one of my teachers, and I think it was my grade one teacher actually, um, had put a comment on my report card that she wants to talk to my parents about how when I'm in group settings, I will either take a back seat and not speak, I will not be a part of it. Anytime someone tries to uh, speak to me, I'll put a wall up or I won't stop talking. Um, and it's not like productive talking. It's like, I would just babble on and on. Um, and then also I would shake. And that teacher indicated that as well. Um, and there was like a follow-up meeting um, my parents told me about a couple times actually as my grade school went on um, where they identified that I did have anxiety. So I did see um, like therapists in school who tried to give me coping skills, but uh, that didn't happen until I was like in grade seven or eight. And at that point it was already getting worse. So there wasn't a lot of early uh, indicators because at that point, like I think, I feel like a lot of the teachers thought and a lot of like the adults around me thought I'd grow out of it. Like it's just a habit you develop as a child. That's something that you'll grow out of. Um, but I never really grow out of it. It just kind of got progressively worse. I was going to, where I was going to go next is, um, you talk about it getting progressively worse, you know, so maybe you can talk about, you know, those, that transition from sharpening your pencil to three times, having a really organized desk, having some concerns to kind of where, you know, basically your life was on fire, right? Like you're yeah. to that point where, you know, the, the house was burning, if you will, like that, what was that period like? And like, what were some of your behaviors? What were some of the things that you were experiencing when things kind of got a little out of control um so a lot of the stuff that i didn't like hold significance to um until didn't come really come out until my brothers actually discussed it because my brothers w witnessed everything happen right um and they were like around the same age my younger brother's a year younger than me um and really recently we had a conversation um and for them they started to realize that things weren't okay around the time i hit grade five um, and now I always used to sleepwalk. I always used to have night terrors. But around that time, um, I think that's like the catalyst for when things got really bad. I would start sticking my fingers under my parents' and family members' noses while they slept to make sure they were breathing. I couldn't sleep 
um, until I knew that everyone was safe. I would like walk the halls um, to the point where I'd literally sit outside of my younger brother's door. And there'd be multiple times where he'd wake up and he'd be like, Chelsea, go to sleep, everything's fine. And then he'd have to walk the halls with me. Um, and I think for them, that was the big thing. For me, I remember this big switch around that same time um, where I felt like an outsider a little bit, but I still had friends. But then when you get to like grade five or six, you start getting this clickiness. Um, people create groups and stuff like that. And there was always like a little bit of sense of um, that I didn't belong into any of them. And now I had really supportive friends that I'm still friends with to this day that tried to include me to things, but it was this overwhelming sense of anxiety that I did not belong there. Um, and anytime I would try to make friends and I'd try to hang out with them after school, I'd be in group settings and I'd be sitting there and I'd be anxious the entire time wanting to go home. And I think that's when I started having that flight uh, mode put into me. Where like if I was in an anxious situation, instead of dealing with it, I'd leave. So there'd be lots of times where I'd just leave class um, and go to the bathroom or I'd leave the group setting and go home. And that resulted in me missing out on a lot of experiences. Um, but once again, I think that was when I started realizing that something wasn't okay because I knew for a couple of years before it, things actually got really bad. Um, and then I think the around the time it got worse would be the end of grade seven, beginning of grade eight. And at this point, obviously you have everyone around you is going through puberty. So there's already a lot of hormones going on involved. There's already a lot of like people are making friends, people are going into high school. You're about to lose your friend group. You're about to do that transition to high school. People are getting meaner. Um, now it's all about looks and the brands you're wearing and stuff like that. Now, all of a sudden the kid with the book, and now this kind of switched from regular books to comic books. So that was a big uh, thing for that age group there. All of a sudden the person with their nose behind a comic book isn't cool anymore. So now Chelsea, of, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just about to say it's a lot of like the friend group I had just kind of, didn't want to be associated with not the cool kid. Did you, before you sort of, we get to the point where you actually reached out and we got help, but when you started to notice, I mean, did you try and manage it on your own, come up with your own strategies? Were you online trying to search why I'm feeling like this? Did you do some sort of on your own sort of self-evaluation and trying to figure things out on your own without before you reached out for help? Uh, yeah, and that was probably the worst thing I did. Um, I think that made it a lot worse because at that time, Tumblr was a thing. Um, and I'm not quite sure if you're familiar with Tumblr in early 2011, 2012, 2013, but it was a very toxic place for people with mental health issues. Um, there was a lot of glorifying self-harm. Um, there was a lot of glorifying eating disorders and mental illness in general. And I think I picked up a lot of my toxic habits off that web platform. Um, that's where I developed my self-harm um, issues. It's where I developed a lot of my like unhealthy coping strategies. Um, and I also found a group of people that were not healthy. Um, and I think at that age, that was very detrimental to me um, because I had then learned, discovered to cope with my mental illness through these negative habits. Um, and at that point, I didn't have the ability to express it to an adult that I was feeling this way because I didn't know what I was feeling. But now all of a sudden I'm on this online platform where people are saying you have A, B, and C. We have A, B, and C. This is how we deal with it. Um, so it definitely was not a good thing for me to do. And there, you're finally in a group where people kind of feel the same way as you, though, or at least expressing similar emotions that you you've been experiencing. The it's, your experience on Tumblr just makes me think of you know your experience on social media, and 
if we could separate now because you're you're on social media now but in a much different way and maybe we can talk about that uh, a bit later but um when you're growing up i remember you saying to when we first met like um then like you were like the only brown girl in your class right that uh you know you talked about that feeling not necessarily feeling included or part of the community or representative of the community and then you're growing up at a time when adults are trying to figure out social media as well as these kids that you're going to school with and uh i mean i you know i really it actually makes me emotional just trying to um bring up your story because as a father I, you know what you experience is not something that i would wish upon anybody let alone my own kids but if you're comfortable with it like can you talk about some of the social media stuff that you experience as you're dealing with this anxiety these mental health issues as well as trying to be a kid in school and fit in and all this other stuff and now you're dealing with these bullies on social media so uh for that for me was um a very hard thing to go through because there's this belief that you can just turn off the computer if someone's bullying you can just turn it off um however i don't think people realize that if you turn it off it translates like these people you actually know in real per like in real life so even if you turn it off you go to school and it's still there and at that point everyone's seen it um so i think it was i want to say 2012 um, I was ending of grade eight, uh, and everyone's laughing over someone's phone about something. Uh, I remember being in class. It was like the last week of grade eight. And at that point, everyone's in celebration mode. Like your teachers are bringing out snacks and stuff like that. Cause you feel like finished elementary school. Um, there was a party I wasn't invited to. Uh, and now my friends, oh, I'm super grateful for them. Cause they ended up doing a separate party. It didn't invite the people that bullied me. It was just like our little group of friends that had a little thing going. Um, and I didn't understand why they didn't invite me. Um, and now all of them are huddled around a phone laughing. Um, and my friend's like, Chelsea, don't go over there. Um, and obviously they're looking at me. I want to go over and see. Uh, the first thing I see on this person's phone is I hate Chelsea Lyle fan page on Facebook. Um, and it's basically like, not like a fan page, but at that time, I think it was like a group. And it was basically like people in your class, in my class, had joined this group um, and were posting things in this group. And, there was, and then at that point, like, I almost, I kind of ignored it for the rest of the day. Um, I wanted to go home. I wanted to finish the day. I wanted to finish my assignments. Um, I knew I was almost done. I knew I was almost out of school. Um, it would be fine. I get home, I log onto my desktop um, and I realize this group now probably has 50 people in it. Uh, and for my elementary school, um, that's huge. That's a lot of people. Uh, and then I look through the people that have joined it and a lot of these people don't go to my school. These are just strangers. Um, and I think like, I think my friend had said only a small handful of people at that were in this group actually went to my school. Um, and this group was filled with just people making fun of me. Um, at the time I had bangs, uh, like just kind of like went over one of my eyes, you know, one of the things that teenagers do. Um, but there was a lot of comments about that. There was a lot of comments about how it was the weird kid with the comic books. Um, a lot of comics, uh, just, there was a lot of racist comments. I'm not gonna teeter around that. There was a lot of them. Um, and especially, so there was a specific group of kids that went to my school that would call me peanut butter face. Um, and then it was just like comments about that. Um, comments about how, and then it got mean. Uh, it turned into talking about how people wanted me to kill myself. And at that point I had never really contemplated suicide. Like it had caught, popped into my head a few times, but it had never been something I like, I actively thought about, if that makes sense. 
because I wasn't really like depressed at that point. I was mainly a lot of anxious. Um, and I think that is what triggered a lot of my depression. Um, I saw that comment and it sent me a little bit into a whirlwind where it was like, these people I don't know, these people who have never met me now on the internet want me to kill myself. Um, and then I entered grade nine. I think someone's parent had reported this to school or something like that um, because the Facebook page had gotten taken down. And I entered grade nine, bullying still has happened, still happening. But then there, now there's this thing called ask.fm. And I knew it's basically like this anonymous forum where people can ask questions and answer it. And there was something at the back of my head that told me, Chelsea, this is a bad idea for you to get. People are not going to be nice to you. But at this point, I still thought that people could be nice. So I was like, hey, maybe they'll ask me what my favorite color is or something like that. I think I had it for probably less than a day. Um, and it was just constant people telling me to kill myself, telling me I was ugly. Um, at that point, I had self-harmed and someone had seen it. So there was comments about that. Um, and it was just constant stream. And at that point, I was already anxious. I, was, I spent that summer struggling for the first time with depression. And now you're in grade nine, new school, whatever. And now you have all these comments. Um, and for me, that was something I struggled a lot with because it was like, there was no escape from it. Like I'd go leave school, I'd come home, log onto the internet, which we used to be one of my, like with Tumblr and stuff like that used to be my escape. And now I have people insulting me there. It's almost like you lose a sense of privacy and also like a sense of security. Like you're in my, it's my house, I'm, I'm my computer. Why am I still being subjected to this? If that makes sense. Yeah. Every so time I hear it, sorry, go ahead, Dale. I was just gonna say like the social media piece, did it translate into in-person and get physical as well? Yeah, um, there was a point where I stopped going on Facebook. Um, I recognized that at that point that that was not healthy. That was not something I wanted to witness. A guy in my class printed off the page and put it on my desk. Um, and I didn't know it was him until probably about three or four years ago. He actually reached out to me and he apologized. And he owned up to the fact that it was him that printed them off. But it was like four or five pages of just these comments. And so I had logged off. I had done my part, like the adults were telling me. I had got off social media. I blocked the people. But like now I'm in class, the sheets in front of me of people's comments. There's no escaping it. Yeah, that's every time I hear this part, it, my heart breaks. And, you know, I we talk about social media and how, you know, it brings out sometimes the worst people or the worst in people that normally wouldn't do these things but get caught up. But I just, I got to think it's got to be even harder for someone who's got compulsive behaviors, right? Social media to not, to kind of pull away from that, like, you know, to be able to separate yourself from what's going on without, you know, my guess is your tendency is I got to get on there and see what's going on all the time. So I got to think it's equally challenging for, for someone like yourself. And I think media. for me, I struggle a lot with it because when I stopped going to school, it was the only form of social interaction I had. Um, so when I started getting bad and I couldn't go to school, I'd go on to social media because that's the only way you can talk to people. Like I was isolated in my room. That's the only way you could see what was going on at school. You could see what was going on with people you went to school with and stuff like that. Um, and now, like, I think looking back on it, I should have isolated myself from that group of people because it made it so much worse. But like there's no other way I could have socialized, right? So then, like, what was next? Like, things got worse. Um, I know, I know eventually you, you came in contact with Ontario Shores, so, you know, but what, you know, 
from what you were just experiencing to getting to Ontario Shores, what was, what did that entail? So Ontario Shores was kind of like our last hope um, because we had spent years um, trying to get, get me therapy, trying to get me help, but like nothing was working. Uh, I got, and I say bad, I say this term a little lightly because it does not describe what happened at all. It got, it was horrifying. It was a nightmare. Um, and I remember uh, October of 2012, when I, the year I had started grade nine, I don't know what it was. It was almost like something flipped in me. Uh, it just, going to school was impossible. I couldn't leave my house. Um, I remember waking up one morning and I was puking, like shaking violently, having a panic attack on my floor. Uh, and I could not leave my house. Um, it was almost like my house was like a prison that I couldn't escape because anytime I tried to leave, um, I would just get so anxious. Um, and I would try to go to school. It's not like I didn't want to go to school. I loved academics. I loved being in school. I loved engaging in the material I was learning. Um, that was always, I was always like an academically based student. Um, so being outside of school for me was something I struggled with. Um, so for me to not go to school was huge. Um, and then I remember I got depressed in a way that I had not experienced. Cause I would get a little sad. I would get a little bouts of sadness throughout that summer. Um, but this one would last weeks, months. And then it became to the point where I stopped going to school and then, uh, winter happened. I don't remember much of that winter, but it was bad. I was self-harming more. And then a little bit after my 15th birthday, I had my first suicide attempt. Um, I had taken pills and I walked into my parents' room and I told them, um, and I think it was actually like two or three days after my 15th. And that's when I ended up in Lake Ridge for the first time. And that started a round of hospitalizations, like constant, where I'd be out for like a week, um, things would get bad again, and I'd be back in. And it was just a constant in and out revolving door to the point where when they finally suggested Ontario Shores, I was exhausted. I was like, I have done this for the past two, three years. Um, if this doesn't work, I don't want to do anything else. So you, you had a referral to come here and maybe you can describe a little bit about your experience at Ontario Shores and, and, and what that, you know, what, 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 the, what the process was and what you learned and, and, and how you came to be where you are today. Oh, well, and maybe what you thought about Ontario Shores when you referred, because I think... Well, yeah, I know we talked about this before. You, yeah, you always, I always tell the Chelsea story about, you know, um, your early perceptions or how, you know, what your perception was before, but please share, that's a, that's a good story. So I was terrified. Um, literally everyone I'd spoken to, so growing up, uh, it was always Whippy Psych. It was that ominous thing that was hanging over people's head. Um, and like the minute I had told people I got a referral onto Terror Shores, people started feeding that as well. They're like, oh, you're gonna die there. You're gonna get attacked there. People are violent there. Um, and then I had made the mistake of watching Girl Interrupted, probably about a week before my admission date. Um, so I walked in terrified and then I walk in and there's like windows everywhere. I think there was like birds taped to the windows too. Um, everyone's smiling and <laughs> not, happy. not real birds, but <laughs> yeah, like the, like the pedo, yes. cardboard pedo yeah. like that. Yeah. everyone's smiling and happy. Um, everyone's talking. It's not anything like I expected. And I walked in with my suitcase in hand. I looked at my mom and I'm like, are we sure we're in the right place? So from that you know, first meeting, like back to kind of Chris's question, I, you know, you were in the adolescent unit. Um, so tell us, you know, like when you got there, like, you know, what, 
how were you greeted? What was that experience like? I you know I know there you're with a bunch of other you know young people on the unit. Uh, I know you have a favorite staff member, or at least I think you do. Um, you know what was that experience like? Uh, so I remember my first day because I was a little terrified. Um, however, one of the child and youth workers, because uh, we had just moved to Ajax um, in that July, right before I got admitted. So I got admitted in December. So we had just moved to Ajax in July. So I had only started my new high school for probably a bit a week before I dropped out again um, because I couldn't handle it. Uh, when I walked in, there was a child and youth worker who actually went to the high school that I went to. Um, and so she kind of like pulled me out of my bubble, started talking about that area and stuff like that. And for me, that was big because I felt less isolated. Um, it, it didn't really feel like there was a divide between the patients and staff. It felt like the staff actually cared about me. Um, whereas previous experiences, it was very much an in and out experience where they're like, high five, we gave you two coping skills that we don't know if will actually suit you. It's a short term fix. Um, you're out the door. If you come back, you come back. If you don't, you don't. Whereas here, it was like, they're actually making an attempt to get to know you. And that was a big shock for me um, because I felt like a human instead of a patient, if that makes sense. Um, and then uh, there, a lot of the staff there, uh, honestly, on that unit really benefited me in the, like a good way. Um, they really brought me out of my shell because you're dealing with mental illness, but you're also dealing with a lot of teenage issues going on as well right so you're anxious but then you're also isolated from things like dances that are going on at your school your friends and stuff like that um so i remember i walked into the unit uh and nadia uh the dr delisa the psychologist there um all i could hear is her heels i remember i walked in and all i could hear was her heels and her laugh um and she has this really comforting laugh um and I think for a lot of us, and I still talk to a lot of people that I was on the unit with because we formed a lot of like really great friendships there. Um, for us, that laugh was very like warming, if that makes sense, um, because it's comforting because you're going through these scary things and then you have these staff members who are like a beacon of hope almost, who are smiling, they're happy all the time. And it's very hard to be in your head and be sad when you've got all of these people around you that are smiling and laughing constantly. Um, and so things like group, uh, there were small things like they'd let us play music in it like before a song we could pick a song and that for that this was huge and that really helped with us uh, like connecting and being able to open up when you have a staff member who's with you that is willing to get you out of your shell who actually cares about you it's easier to share your experiences and it's much easier to be receptive of the things that they're telling you if they actually want to form a connection with you um, and I think that was huge that was the big difference I realized when I got into Ontario Shores is that I wasn't just a patient I was someone the, the staff member actually cared about um, and I think like that is where I thrived. Um, and I think that's what made it very different. It, uh, and why I recovered honestly is because now I have this team um, that I am in the unit with that actually wants to connect with me and talk about things other than my mental illness, but also give me coping skills to that's like personalized to me as well. So that was very nice. And I guess, you know, Daryl, Daryl and I've talked to a number of guests on the podcast that share that saying that, you know, unlike other kind of medical things that you have to have a trust and a relationship with people that are providing mental health care. And because if you don't feel that they, they have your best interest or you don't have that trust or that bond, it's really hard to unpack things and have a, a robust dialogue about what you're going through. So were you were you first when you came in a little bit apprehensive because everything you went by, did it did it take longer to kind of build trust or, or, or was that a quick process for you? 
Yeah, I took a lot of time to build trust. Uh, I spent a lot of my time in my room. We'll try to. Um, I think for me, there's an aspect of you're ill, but you're also still a child. Um, and I think as an adult, I look back on my experiences, and I think that's the part that I struggled with because I was still a child. Um, I wasn't didn't have the emotional matureness to be separated my, from my parents for that long, um, but also I was still scared. Um, this is a new environment. I am coming with for, and I know I'm going to be there for a while. I'm entering this unit with people I've never met before. I'm not with my mom and dad. Um, previous stays, I'd only been like a week or two, and I knew for like I knew this would be long term stay. Um, so that was very scary for me. So. I think having those staff members that helped bring you out of your shell helped a lot um, because, yeah, at the end of the day, you're still a kid. Um, and it was very hard to not want to participate on the unit. I will admit that they made it very hard to want to stay in my room because they were always like playing games or laughing. Um, they had like crafts going on. Um, There's a running joke amongst my friends that were on the unit that Big Bang Theory was always playing. Um, so you'd always hear the laughter from the TV, you'd always hear them having fun, and you're kind of in your room, and you're like, ooh, I kind of want to peek out and see what they're doing. Um, and, like, everyone was so inviting, and so you'd go to sit down with them, um, and it's almost like they knew you already. There was no apprehensive, like, everyone's, like, kind of like what I'm used to in school, right? They get there, everyone kind of stares at you weird. It was very much, uh, here, come play with us, we're not gonna say anything about you, we're all accepting of you. Um, come play cards with us or it was come do this craft with us and then slowly over time I wouldn't go to my room after group right away I just go and sit with the child and youth workers or the other patients um, and just play games and it's very hard to be in your head and be isolated when they're like creating an environment where you can join in and you can have fun just listening to you talk it's like you have a hard time dealing with adolescents like peers in high school and now all of a sudden you're living with a bunch of strange ones and uh in a place where you know you're hoping to get help but um there's a stigma associated with you know mental health i think there's a greater stigma associated with being an inpatient in a mental health hospital and i think some people might feel like or have the perception that being an inpatient means you're coming here, you're institutionalized, you're getting drugged, whatever the case may be, and you have your room and you're kept away from people. And maybe you could talk a little bit about, like you did, you know, mention some of the fun things, but some of the work that you, like, you're here to work, like um, oh, yeah. when you're yeah. an inpatient, right? Like maybe talk about some of the things you worked on, like not only with your own health, but I, I know you got involved in school again. Like, like what were some of the things that, you know, some of the work that you had to do when you were an inpatient? Um, so I think the hardest part about being an inpatient is the fact that it forces you to recognize that you have bad habits. Um, it forces you to recognize that the way you talk to yourself too, uh, and your thought processes affect your mental illness. Um, because I think for me, um, my biggest thing was I always saw mental illness as kind of like a thing I couldn't treat. It just existed. Um, people would give me coping skills and I'd be like, it's not going to work because I have a mental illness. However, when you're inpatient and now you're having this team that knows you um, and knows a lot about you, they're forcing you to recognize the thought process in your head. And for me, I had a lot of like negative self-talk. And um, I think a lot of the work I did in the inpatient unit was recognizing how this self-talk feeds my anxiety. Um, and it was how a lot of my coping skills I developed because I never had someone say, hey, do A, B, and C to cope with your anxiety. I just developed these habits on my own. And that it was a lot of recognizing that, like, I avoided things. 
Um, and for me, that was difficult because I always thought I didn't have a part in my mental illness whatsoever. Um, I just thought I couldn't control it. However, now you have someone that's giving you these skills that not only like recommend them to you, but they actually work. Um, so you're noticing a change in yourself and you're noticing the feeling um, switch from this almost helplessness to this empowering, I have the ability to cope with it by myself. Like now I have this toolkit. Um, and I think that toolkit really came into effect when I went back to my high school. Um, so towards the end of my stay, we started doing um, a couple days. Uh, so every day I'd go to school um, from Ontario Shores to my high school. Uh, for a couple classes and then I come back and that was really a test of what I had learned over the past few months um I think it helped that now I was with a different peer group it also was not good that I was now with a different peer group because now I have to make new friends uh, and I was very lucky to have my brother um I was when I started my high school I didn't have enough credit so I was in the year below with my younger brother um and so we were in a couple classes together and he really like helped me and introduced me to people and I think I was privileged in that sense but also um, the way in which the staff interacted with my high school. Um, we had an action plan. We had coping skills and like I never felt helpless. There was never a point in time where I was sitting in class, had a symptom appear and I did not have the toolkit to deal with it. There was never like a sense where I needed to go into the avoidance mode. What about your, you know, obviously the goal is to get you back in the community and transition. What about your family's role and, and how, you know, when they're here, what, what did they learn and how did they become part of the, you know, the plan going forward for, for your recovery? And, and, and did they learn a lot during this process as well? Uh, so I am very privileged to have my family because they were, they came to visit me almost every day. Um, and they also attended family uh, therapy sessions where everyone in my family sat down once a week um, with a social worker and our, my doctors. Uh, and we all talked about not only how my mental illness was affecting me, but also how it was affecting the family unit. Um, and I think with everyone kind of carries that a little, little differently. Um, looking back on it now, I I have very much respect for my parents. Uh, like I look at them, especially now as an adult and I'm working, my dad would come work like nine, 10 hour days and then immediately after come visit me and then sit in the family therapy sessions. Um, and like everyone knows, once you get off of work, you just want to go home and put your feet up. Uh, I can't imagine like how that would affect them mentally to have to now go see your daughter who's not doing too good um, and hear about all these things that she's experiencing. Um, and same with my brothers. Like my brother was a kid. My brother was a child. Um, my older brother as well. Um, and have to having to witness your sister walk through these halls like in the middle of the night and be terrified. Um, and I didn't realize until the family like therapy sessions that that was affecting all of them. Um, and obviously, like watching this happen, um, they had some thoughts they that they needed to share. Um, but they also wanted to learn how to support me. Um, and I think the family therapy sessions are were really what gave my family the toolkit to help me when I transitioned out, um, because they were instrumental to me not like relapsing to me continuing my uh, road to recovery um, and it gave them the ability to vocalize what they were feeling but also like take feedback and say hey this coping strategy actually isn't working can we try another one um i think that really was uh, that helped me a lot because i felt supported the first time i i met you i don't know if you remember but you were still an inpatient and you're we were in this like conference room and you it was with your parents and uh, a couple of the staff because you had expressed an interest in and sharing your story and <clears throat> we wanted to give your parents a sense of what, you know, what that meant. And, um, 
I, they were supportive, but not necessarily um, thrilled. I would say that you that you wanted to do this, and that's when you kind of like er, like when I think about it now, like you were still a, you were still an inpatient. You were going to school at the time. You know, like you mentioned, uh, you know, you know, for parts of the day, and then you you signed off on being in videos and writing your story. And you, I know uh, like some of these things are coming back to me as I'm talking, like we were, we had global, I was at your high school with global news yeah. during a mental health week, period. right? You're still, uh, you know, you're still a kid. Um, why, like, why did you want to do that? Like, why did you go from, you know, um, you know, I guess that point where maybe you wanted, sometimes you probably wanted to crawl under a rug and not be seen when you're in the depths of, of your illness to in a point of recovery and just, you don't, you don't care anymore about what people think. And you wanted to share your story. I think with my parents, the big thing was they had a lot of fear because I was bullied really badly in school at my old high school. Um, and they didn't want me to be the different kid again. They didn't want me to have a target on my back. Um, however, I think I had a thicker skin that even if that would happen, um, I had developed the toolkits to understand that like it, honestly, their bullying wasn't a reflection of me. It was a reflection of their own struggles. And I think that was a huge like turning point for me. Um, I was grateful that that did not happen at my high school. Everyone at my high school was very receptive to that see work I did. Um, and everyone was super welcoming. Um, but for me, the reason why I wanted to step into that role is because I learned very quickly that this if the experience I was having wasn't isolated to only me. Um, there are a lot of teenagers and a lot of youth that struggle with mental health issues. And there's a lot of teenagers that don't know where to seek help. Um, and that became apparent after my first few news interviews and the first like uh, campaign we did together. Because I had people reaching out to me saying, hey, I'm recognizing that I have these symptoms. How do I get help to combat this? Um, and I now I felt privilege to be able to say, hey, I know these resources, you can reach out to this link, you can reach out to this link, go talk to your guidance counselor. Um, but I think it's easier for kids and teenagers to be able to relate to someone their age versus an adult speaking about youth mental health issues. Um, because if I had someone when I was 13, if I had like a 17 year old say, hey, I'm experiencing this, and I had related to that 17 year old, I would have sought help. I would have, uh, taken the advice that they had given me, probably talked to my guidance counselor, but I didn't know anything about mental health. I didn't know anything about mental illness. It wasn't something we discussed. Um, it was always just an adult problem. It was never, never something that teenagers could, like happens to teenagers. So I think it was very important for me to be the person that I needed when I was that age um, to hopefully help someone and help families and youth. Um, and I think that was the big turning point for me. Because it kind of gave me a sense of, I wouldn't say belong, more so purpose, to be able to help people uh, and guide them, if that makes sense. And, and you know, have, dealing with this and hearing from people, how did that, you know, obviously you, you go through high school and you, you start, you're at an age where you start thinking about what do I want to do with my life, right? Like, what am I going to, how did this all shape you and, and sort of, you know, from where you were before to, to this point where you're like, did it help sort of define what you, what mark you wanted to leave on this world? Yeah. Uh, and I think that was really crucial for me. Um, understanding this mark I wanted to leave on the world when I exited high school, uh, when I started high school, it became very apparent that life had continued on when I was hospitalized. My friends had continued to develop. Um, people had continued to grow up. 
Um, and then now all of a sudden I am 19, spent the last two years catching up in high school, uh, and now I have to decide what I want to do with the rest of my life. Uh, I had never thought that far because honestly I didn't think I'd make it that far. I never thought about university, college, or anything like that. Um, now all of a sudden I am a honor student being accepted to these universities. I now have to plot out a life that I didn't think I'd be able to achieve. Like I don't think anyone ever in my family are constantly tells me how proud they are of me. But I don't think any of us really thought I'd make it to university, let alone graduate high school, uh, because that was something I struggled with severely. Um, so then when I got to university, I think the only thing that I really knew for certain what I wanted to do was I wanted to help youth. Um, but I didn't really know which avenue I wanted to take. Uh, and I think that like path really followed me um, because there was a lot of new things that I was experiencing. Um, a lot of developmental milestones I missed because I was uh, sick and not in high school and stuff like that, right? So like forming friendships. Uh, I still struggled with communicating with people. Being in class, because I had never been in class before. Like I had been in small like little classes. Now I'm in a lecture hall with like 100 people. Um, so that was huge. Learning how to study, learning how to do uh, like a work-life balance. Um, learning that it is not okay to spend six hours straight studying with no breaks and no like food breaks or anything like that. Um, so I think having that tunnel vision really helped me uh, because I had a goal in mind, a goal. And it was big for me to get my degree um, because this is something that I always wanted to do, but I never thought I could. And now you're at this point where you have not only the ability to achieve your goal, but also the ability to help people. And I think that was huge for me because it really uh, motivated me to continue to use my toolkit that Ontario Shorts gave me um, and really cope with all these new things I'm facing. So tell people, like, what did you take? Where'd you go? And, and what are you doing now? Uh, so I am at Trent University. Uh, the Durham campus, I am doing a Bachelor of Arts, uh, Honor Bachelor of Arts in Sociology. Uh, I'm doing like an extra semester because the online schooling was a little difficult <laughs> for me. I was working full time. So I'm doing actual little classes. I graduate in December, have my degree. And I think afterwards, I definitely want to youth work with youth who are involved in the justice system um, or some sort of like rehabilitation worker, uh, mainly because I feel like I have that lens where I can not only like provide them with help but also understanding because that's huge it's one thing to be able to say i know this avenue like i i know what you're feeling versus i understand what you're feeling i just want to go back to like just a bit to um high school like you know because one of the things that's always stood out for me is when you talked about you never thought you'd get you never thought you'd live past 17 and having to reevaluate your you know your kind of life when you got there and you were healthy and and able to to cope with uh, circumstances is you really worked your tail off to graduate. Like, can you oh, give yeah, people yeah. a sense of like, cause you were doing it, like, were you not doing, you were t finishing courses here. I believe you were using uh, resources in the community. Like how, how did you catch up and how did you get uh, through high school? Uh, so for me, I always loved academics. I've always loved studying. Um, and I think, I took that break to really reflect on myself and develop myself emotionally. And I was like, it almost looks like my brain reopened back up and I had sponge for it. Um, so when I left Ontario Shores, I had just enough credits. I think I was to start grade 10. Um, I should have been in grade, I think 11 or 12, 11. Um, so then when I got out, um, the first full year I did, I was doing um, credit recovery classes. So these booklets you can do on your own time to get courses. 
as well as like normal courses. Uh, so I caught up, I think about two years in the span of a year, year about half a year. Um, and I was going through like credit recovery courses so quickly to the point where when I hit uh, grade 12, which would technically be my victory lap, I only had to take like two actual in-person classes um, because I caught up so quickly and no one actually thought I caught to catch up this quickly. Um, and not only did I catch up quickly, but I ended up get, being able to achieve honor roll. Um, and I graduated with honor roll and then I was able to go to university. Um, and I think now being able to have a brain that isn't like anxious around schoolwork or doesn't have to be perfectionist that can just simply like absorb what you're learning and like engage with it. It was huge for me um, to have that ability back. And I remember like that part, that part of your life sticks out for me because you were so young and going through, you know, the mental health system and then uh, our relationship uh, through the hospital and, and the work you were doing for us. I, you know, was nervous every time something would come out, especially the first couple of times. And I remember texting you like, you know, like, how's it going? Like, you know, like, are you getting like, especially on social media, like want to make sure that, you know, you weren't being inundated with, um, you know, negative negativity and, and unwelcome messages. Um, but it was really the opposite, right? You touched on it a little bit, but I, I think a teacher came up to you and talked to you about it after seeing you and some of the work that you've done. Um, and you mentioned that your friends like really didn't care that, you know, like what, uh, what you had been through. They only cared about, you know, the person that, uh, that they knew. Um, talk a little bit maybe about if you can, what that meant to you, like the positive feedback that you got during that time. Uh, so there's a running joke in my friend group right now that there's two Chelsea's. There's just a Chelsea that existed with her mental illness and the other to me um, because they've seen such drastic changes in me um, that they fit. They can't connect the two. Like it's almost like there's two Chelsea's that exist in the world. Um, my friends have always been really supportive of me and that's one thing I'm really grateful for. Um, not only my friends, but also their families. Like one of my friend's dads went as far as putting like the newspaper articles I was in on their fridge. Um, and I would only see them every so often, but I'd walk into their house and now these newspaper articles are on their fridge. Um, I have my friends sending me the billboards. Um, a couple of my friends posed with the ones at Ajax, uh, the train station. Uh, and it was just, it was a really like, it was huge for me um, because you go from having social media being used as a tool against you to now you're having strangers you've never met giving you messages of support. Um, and it also really like connected me to people that I haven't spoken to in a while. Um, and I think the, the strangest thing for me was having the people that bullied me reach out to me, um, especially over the last few years. Now, uh, in grade nine, I used to have people take razor blades to my locker. Um, and part of me always knew what group was doing it, but like I never wanted to accuse them of it in case it wasn't. Um, a couple of them had actually reached out to me um, and apologized to me and said uh, that they, they didn't, they didn't, they like lacked the ability to understand how bad it was affecting me, which is one of those things everyone was doing. So they engaged with it to be cool. Um, and then for to see that, uh, I think was huge for me because I didn't understand why people were bullying me. Um, and I don't think anyone really understands why they're being bullied. But to have people say it's not me, it was them, was big. Um, and I think like having people reach out to me also allowed me to forgive them, which was huge. Uh, yeah. You talk about sort of lack of insight, but a lot of people that, you know, I see that have gone through the stuff that you did and sort of the trauma and things that happened have sort of this 
empath sense or a spidey sense when they see things in other people. Do you find that you're able to pick up? Or are you really in tune to other your friends or, or you know, when you're at university of other people to think there might be something going on there? Do you have this sort of special sense now because you've lived through some of these things? Oh, yeah. Um, actually, I can pinpoint a moment in university where we're studying for our uh, stats exam. We used to, like, rent out rooms uh, in the on campus, like, uh, a lot of space for, for us to study. And we just spend all day in there going over our courses, like, as a group. I remember one day, everyone was super overwhelmed. One of my friends actually started crying. We're all, like, stressed. There's no way we're going to pass this exam. So I took out my notebook, and I start drawing a triangle. And everyone's looking at me like, Chelsea, did we miss this part of the stats thing? They're all watching me. Um, and this is the only way I know how to cope, right? Like Nadia had taught me CBT triangles. So I'm like, thoughts, behaviors, whatever. And I start writing it out. And then I would just see these like group of like 20 something year olds just hovering over me like, Chelsea, what are you doing? So then they all take out a piece of paper and they start doing the same. Uh, and they're like, and it was like, what would happen if we failed this exam? Uh, and so we all just like kind of rationalize together. And then you could just feel kind of like the room relax a little bit. We took a break. And then we went back to studying and I think everyone was less anxious about it. Um, and I think like being able to share this toolkit with people around me was huge too, because adolescence and early adulthood is a very scary time for a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of like uncertainty and stuff like that happening. Uh, so a lot of my friends will actually reach out to me and be like, Hey, um, do you have minutes to talk? Um, I just don't know what's going on. And they joke that I do the brain pick where I pull things from them, but I also like teach them, what I've learned, like CBT, how to like reframe your thoughts and stuff like that. Um, so a lot of my friend group now, actually, one of my friends got a tattoo of a triangle on their finger for that reason. <laughs> They've never done therapy themselves, but the, the triangle method worked so well for them that they just adopted it. Well, well, Chelsea, I hope you keep influencing your friends in the community um, with your story. And, and I mean, we were almost up in an hour here. Um, I could talk to you forever. I can speak for Chris. We're both so proud of you. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me.